Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. Dr. Patricia Sill is a minimally invasive and colorectal surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. She's also a world-renowned innovator and was the first surgeon on earth to perform a transanal total mesorectal excision for rectal cancer. Amir was on-site, large and in charge at the Sage's annual meeting, which as we all know is always great. He was able to catch up with Dr. Silla in person. As always, links are in the show notes below. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up and where you did your training? Sure. So I uh, grew up in West Africa, Ivory Coast, a small country, um, was, uh, used to be a French colony. Um, and um, my father is from that country and my mother is actually French originally. And they met uh, when they were uh, studying uh, abroad. And then he settled in Ivory Coast. And I was actually born in France, but then moved to Ivory Coast. So I spent my um, pretty much 15 years of my life. I left for college. Um, but I had the uh, unique experience of uh, growing up there, and um, it was really uh, uh, quite an experience. I developed my love for interest in medicine when I was there. Uh, my mother was very active in the community uh, in organizing um, uh, supply, collecting supplies for uh, Médecins Sans Frontières and other groups that were doing especially cleft palate repair. And so very early on, I was sort of, you know, in that activist, you know, <laughs> efforts with my mom. Um, and I always wanted to be, I didn't know it was surgery, but I wanted to be in medicine. Uh, and then I uh, ended up, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, pursue my, um, my, uh, my college education in the U.S. Uh, by the fact that she was an American citizen. So I was, I was very lucky. So I was, um, I essentially went to Washington, D.C., where her family was, and I went to Georgetown. And then from Georgetown, I applied for medical school because it was clear, you know, I was on a path to medicine no matter what. And then I um, ended up going to Cornell. I was very attracted to big city, you know, life in New York City, so I couldn't pass the opportunity to go to uh, to Cornell. And I spent four years there. And then I stayed in New York, you know, to do my surgical training, um, driven by the fact that I had a boyfriend at the time who was an MD-PhD. So I was, we were on the long run for staying in New York. And then um, I did my fellowship as well, waiting for him to finish. And I was very lucky to kind of sample different hospital system in, in, uh, in New York City. That was a very valuable experience. And I chose to do my colorectal fellowship at Mount Sinai Hospital, uh, which was really was the hub of innovation at mm -hmm. the time. So it was a really exciting time uh, where I was exposed to laparoscopy, laparoscopic colectomy. was one of the few sites doing laparoscopic colectomy back then. Um, and so it was, it was really an exciting time. That's an amazing story. Um, and your parents were in Olson Medicine? Oh, no, no. My father's a businessman, uh, trained to uh, um, run a company, so a computer company. And my mother is a high school teacher, English high school teacher. So what was that experience like growing up in Ivory Coast? And how do you, how do you think that kind of had an impact on you going forward? You said it made you, you know, kind of ignited your activist roots at a very young age. But what, how did that have an impact on you? Well, I think I had a unique experience in that, you know, I grew up in um, clearly, you know, a country with, um, you know, a third world country. 
So I mean, Ivory Coast and Abidjan, the city where I grew up, was actually relatively, you know, pretty modernized. Uh, so I was lucky to go to a, a, a French school and really, really receive the best education there. But you're constantly exposed, obviously, to significant need. Um, and so I think the fact that I had the opportunity to go, for example, we traveled, you know, to visit family in the U.S. and in France. I, very early on, I could tell, you know, the, the tremendous disparities and differences mm -hmm. in, 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 you know, in life and access to things. So, I mean, it, it definitely was impactful to me, at least, you know, seeing the contrast in between the ultra-rich and the ultra-poor. Um, and in terms of medical, you know, exposure, I think it was just the work that my mother did um, really exposed the fact that the health system was really, um, really uh, suffering quite a bit. And so the fact that even, you know, there was an, a need for cleft palate repair, those kids were literally rejected by their families. They were considered to be uh, possessed um, and just... Uh, um, families would reject them, so they would essentially be in the streets begging, and that's how they were able to sustain, you know, a, a decent life. And so I think, you know, being exposed to this, and then, you know, three months later, you go to the U.S. and you see how people live, you know, yeah. normal, comfortable lives was was quite striking. So you always live sort of like on that edge in the middle, you know, seeing that tremendous contrast and knowing that you want to, you know, you want to help in one way or the other. It probably influenced me significantly, I think, at, at a young age. Yeah, you know, uh, growing up, I used to go visit Pakistan all the time, yeah. where my family's from, and so it certainly leaves an impact. Was it was it a big cultural change to come go from being in Ivory Coast growing up? I know it sounds like you went back and forth quite often, but yeah. was it a big change to then permanently shift and come to the U.S. for college? Yeah, it was. <laughs> There's no doubt. Um, I was lucky to speak a little bit of English, but I, I didn't really appreciate how much learning I would have to do and and you know, adapting. Uh, so very 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 early on, <laughs> realized. You know, my first, uh, my first year, I really dedicated to mastering English. You know, I was very self-conscious about my, uh, my lack of conversational skills in particular. So, um, that was, that was really my main focus is really to really, um, you know, adapt uh, to the culture as quickly as possible. So college was just perfect for that. <laughs> and, and Georgetown was a great environment. It was very, um, you know, uh, international. So I had my, you know, my French group, my, uh, West African group, and I had my American cohort. And, you know, it was, it was a really great way to integrate. Um, you know, my dad is emigrated from Pakistan as well and, and did his training subsequently in the U.S. and in Canada. And, you know, this is totally my anecdotal experience, but I feel like, you know, if you've come, um, and immigrated to a completely new country, it sort of makes you, uh, a little less reserved, a little, uh, more open to trying new things, yeah. challenging the status quo, you know, kind of like not being afraid to just put yourself out there. Do you think that is true for you or am I, is, you know, how do you think that kind of, because you're clearly an innovator, you're someone who like, you know, pushes the boundaries, tries new things, things that people have never thought about. Do you think that had an impact, the fact that you had to come to a new place and learn new, you know, change, improve your language skills? be in a different environment how, how do you think those two yeah. things interplay i mean i think you probably know that as well as i do but i think it's you stimulated you know and uh forced to adapt quickly and i think it makes you very resourceful and, and very resilient early on so there's no question i mean you're in a different culture i came to the u.s i had family from my mother's side but i was alone my parents were not there uh, I had a brother on on campus in a different in a different university who we're not very close with. So I mean, you have to survive, you have to adapt, and you have to to really be resilient. So I think there's no question. I think it makes you also very 
um, you know, curious and and excited. I mean, I, I can't tell you how exciting it was to be in the U.S. and and the opportunities that were presenting themselves were really incredible. You know, from food types <laughs> to entertainment for sure. But I was absolutely fascinated and entranced with the American cultures and especially the freedoms, and um, and the, the the opportunities were just incredible. So I mean, I think most of us, you know, coming to this different culture, you you kind of embrace, and then you seize the incredible opportunities that you have. Well, you know that that's an amazing story, and uh, you know it's very inspiring. Just just that in of itself. But you know, as a colorectal fellow, <laughs> I can't help but ask you a little bit about the genesis of Tiatini, and I I'll link to it in the show notes. But you ha- you gave this great lecture, I think, in Orlando um, about sort of like the 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 falsehoods and the truths around oh, Tiatini. And, and you tell this story about how you developed TATME. And you were really a fellow, actually, when you started developing TATME. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of yeah. how that, this, like, literally revolutionary procedure came about? So I think it's serendipity. was really quite fortunate. I was very lucky that um, when my uh, now husband and I moved to Boston, I, was, I, was, uh, I decided to do a, f- a second fellowship in NIS, which was actually also very controversial at the time. You know, mm-hmm. all my colorectal mentors were, you know, why the heck would you do that? You know, why don't you just, you know, take a job or do something else? And I, I always loved colorectal and NIS. It was always the two. I'd never really felt there, was, there should be a distinction. It was sort of the spectrum of minimally invasive surgery, GI surgery. Um, so after my colorectal fellowship, I chose to do an MIS fellowship and, and be in Boston. And at MGH, it happens that that year was the most incredible year in terms of surgical innovation uh, when it comes to the merger of surgery and endoscopy techniques. So my, my, my program director and mentor, David Ratner, was literally in the midst of this incredible movement of notes. So when I arrived, I was exposed to this incredible, you know, burst of activity in the lab, and there were, you know, proof of concept, transvaginal cholecystectomy in animal, transitioning to cadaver models. So it was a very exciting time. And so, again, this was an incredible opportunity. So I came along with a different perspective, obviously, of a colorectal surgeon. And so they were in the lab working on transesophageal and transvaginal procedures. And I said, hey, when you're done with your, you know, swine cadavers, can I use them and try something transanally? So it was really exciting because I had the resources there. So it was very early on. There were really no issues of, you know, grant or, you know, I had those resources available. So we started off really with the experimental model, proof of concept. And as I talk about, we were very lucky that we didn't really rely on a new, uh, brand new technology. Mm-hmm. We had the transanal endoscopic microsurgery pr- platform available, which was really what helped propel it very early on. So we started working and developing the model in swine, and we moved the cadaver model very quickly. And then the most exciting part, obviously, was that first case. We were working so hard towards, you know, doing a first pilot um, and a first human case. And again, this is where the world of connections and, and friendships really pays off. And through Sage's collaboration, Dave Ratner was very close friends with Antonio Lacey and had done a lot of work together through societies. And I literally got a call from Antonio Lacey. I mean, I was completely starstruck when he called and he said, I've been watching what you've been doing. I've been reviewing your videos and, and I, I need you to come and do a, the first case with you. I have, I've, I've, I've figured out, I have the perfect patient. I got IRB approval and um, I want you to fly up there and, and do what you do and we'll do it together. I mean, you can't, you can't say no to such an opportunity. So, of course, I, I was pretty far along in my pregnancy at the time. <laughs> 30, 35 weeks. <laughs> That's yes, amazing. I, you know, so I, I cross-checked everything with with everyone, and, and especially my my husband and my OB. But you know, Antonio Lacy's at the time, his his wife was an obstetrician at, mm-hmm. at the hospital clinic of Barcelona. So I felt very confident, and so it was an incredible opportunity because I think we were able to combine 
his expertise and his incredible, you know, gift. I mean, he's an exceptional surgeon, very familiar with innovation. But combining with the rehearsed, we had done over 50 cadavers sequentially, male, female. We had rehearsed the technique to the point where, to me, it was just doing another procedure in the lab. But this was a patient under his guidance. And and, his, and, and so together, you know, we were able to replicate the exact same steps. And so it took the stress away because we had rehearsed this so extensively. And it, it was really incredible. So it was, it was just the perfect way to sort of, you know, tackle the first human case. And from there on... I mean, the story goes on. I mean, the most exciting part was that, you know, pioneers and, and, you know, really saw the advantage immediately. He didn't take a lot of talks and a little, he didn't take a lot of articles for people to really get it and understand, especially for rectal cancer surgery, it became sort of, you know, the holy grail. It's like, we've been struggling for so long, you know, to achieve sphincter preservation, to, to, to not do APR for low rectal cancers. So there was such a gap there that it was a natural, you know, solution that we really had to explore. And so, you know, as you know, we worked very, very hard to delineate that pathway. I mean, it all became very early on. We were very attentive to safety. It's like, well, I've done 50 cadavers before I did my first case. Does it mean everyone else has to do 50 cadavers before their first case? And so this was not practical. So the question was, well, how do we get people there? You know, is it an Antonio Lacey only who can do this procedure? Or can we democratize it, but still, you know, figure out the minimum standards and minimum skills that is required to be able to do this safely? So we spent a lot of time working there. It was very similar to POEM. So the, the, the trajectory of POEM and, and TATME were very similar. So we followed sort of the same pathway of safe implementation, delineating the proper steps, the technique, refining it, and then really focusing on, on safety metrics and then pilots. So it, I was more impressed by how quickly things, you know, um, evolved because people really believed. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about in that talk, um, the fact that you were like, you were still waiting for IRB <laughs> yes. in the U.S. Yes. And then you got it in Spain and, and you're 35 weeks pregnant, which in and of itself is amazing. So you, you go there, you do your first TATME with Antonio Lacey. Yeah. And then you come back and you get all these sort of like very kind of not threatening but very scary kind of oh, emails yeah. Yeah. saying like you went IRB shopping yeah. and what was that experience like it was it was pretty um surprising and i mean i had had the blessing from my chair of course you know to mm -hmm. do this this surgery abroad it was not the first time that a surgeon from mg from my institution had done that but what was unique that we did not know is that even though Antonio Lacey had the IRB approval from his hospital, the policy was that if a, a, a surgeon from MGH was going to do a procedure outside, you know, especially in another country, we had to have run the story or the, the, the clinical scenario and gotten approval by our own IRB to protect essentially the surgeon doing the procedure. We were not aware of that. <laughs> despite all that came out from there. So we had to walk it back pretty aggressively. And so we did it, we did it retrospectively. And we, we, but I think it was a learning experience, I think, for all of us, including my chair, who was very supportive. But, you know, this was obviously very delicate. And, but we were very confident that the regulatory process in Spain was solid. And so, but it was sort of one of those regulatory hurdles that you have to keep in mind before you do this kind of work. Yeah, and you were clearly very diligent and very attentive to the fact that you were not going to just implement this without having really solid um, experience, monitoring, safety, all those kinds of things. But it must have been frustrating at times, you know, at several points along this journey, you would have setbacks where people would say, well, we don't know how safe this is. Yeah. Or, you know, and then, then meanwhile, you know, you got the IRB so quickly in Spain. And then I think while in that 11 month period, while you were waiting for IRB in the US, 
it, people started doing it all over the place, yeah. like in the in China and many other places. Yeah. So you know, as an innovator and someone who's trying to introduce a new technique, what is wh- how do you think that we can both promote innovation, but at the same time do it safely? Um, because I think there, are, you know, many people, especially surgeons, feel that there's a lot of hurdles that have to be overcome nowadays to do research and to promote new techniques. Yeah. So, like, how do you how do you think that we can go about introducing new techniques while yeah. still still being safe? So it's actually a really interesting question because I, you know, every talk I give, I, I show the ideal framework, you know, mm-hmm. that Leanne Feldman contributed to. But this wasn't published until 2009. We were already ahead and doing this, just like poem. I think. To us, it was common sense that we had to, you know, progress very, very carefully. And we also felt the pressure that in addition to publication in our discussion sections and then the subsequent papers, we had to lay some roles very early on. So after, even after the first case, you know, my first, my next, um, my next uh, endeavor was to collect, you know, a group of experts in the U.S. So we actually had a, a sponsored, you know, uh, TATME course, the very first one that we hosted. And it was eight surgeons that I, you know, by special invitation, who had essentially all what I felt were the requirements to do this procedure safely. And we really believed, you know, let's let's do this in a controlled fashion, you know, collect enough data to be able to then move on to the next step. But it was it was it was really mixed feelings when I started seeing all these case reports and people emailing me telling me I've done it, I watched your video, and I'm so excited I did my first. And thank goodness the majority of those surgeons were well-known. These were pioneers who understood and had been innovators themselves and understood, you know, that they had to be very careful. Most of them did it under IRB approval, so they had explained to the patients the risks of doing a novel procedure. But it wasn't like that. Obviously, as you know, it wasn't entirely controlled all the way. So it was a little frustrating, especially when you saw reports when there was no IRB approval. And so I think we walked it back by really very quickly having um, recommendations, um, you know, statements, and then trying to really get people together to work on, you know, guidelines or at least consensus agreements uh, among surgeons to say, you know, wait. And you get this other force, you know, and, and, you know, that was pushing in a direction of, but it's really easy. This is going to, you know, there was a messaging that came from this of, you know, everyone can do this. And we had to fight very hard to try to tone that down a little bit. And I think when surgeons got into the operating room and, you know, were not properly trained and realized that I was getting calls or messages to say, I had to bail out. I couldn't do it. You know, you said it was easy. It's like, I never said it was easy. <laughs> but so you have to be very careful. Um, and especially when you have, you know, influencers, you know, then getting on that procedure and then sending the wrong message with that data to support it, you know, it, it, it becomes difficult to walk it back. But that's your mission. That's your goal is to really develop it in a safe way, collect the data that really allows you to move forward and then really very simultaneously start working on training pathways for safe implementation. And industry plays a role in this. Mm. You know, they were involved and very supportive from the beginning. But we felt, you know, it's you have to go beyond just hosting a course. Okay, because we know even a cadaver course is not sufficient. You have to start thinking about longitudinal, you know, proctoring, longitudinal training and sustained, you know, um, maintenance of those skills. So we really put them also, you know, we challenge them to say, you know, try to pair them up with a proctor. You shouldn't be like, you do a cadaver lab, and then six months later you do your first case. There's got to be some rules or some agreement. Yes, you take the course with the understanding that you're going to be doing this with a proctor. So we had to work all those pieces, and you see the framework now that summarizes all those steps. But at the time, we were kind of, you know, working, you know, figuring this out, you know, looking at how other groups had done, done it. And, and I think POEM was very successful in doing this, but it was a smaller cohort of people doing this because of the skill set required. Right. And I want to come back to the, the mentorship and the learning p- uh, part of this, because I think it's very important. And par- I think part of what Sages is doing, really. 
Um, but you know, there's this moment that you talk about where you have your first urethral injury mm-hmm. and uh, and obviously all these reports started to trickle in of something that we really hadn't seen in colorectal surgery or rectal cancer surgery mm-hmm. up until this point. What was that experience like? like? Obviously, it would have been just a devastating moment to have that happen to you. And did it change how you felt about the procedure? Did you, did you at any point, did you think like, maybe we shouldn't be doing this? Yeah. Like, how did that it was it was nerve wracking. I mean, I can't tell you how devastating the injury was at the time and and subsequently. And um, I think I realized, which I think is a good approach for any surgeon. You know, you, you know, you have the, the several stages of grief, <laughs> and there's there's a big one where it's just you're in shock and a little bit of denial. And I mean, I I just I put everything on hold, um, and you know, it took some time to kind of breathe and and work through through the kinks. And I think what was really incredible is that this gave us an opportunity to really understand the procedure at another level. And we realized one of the th- issues with the training that we did in cadavers is that our dissection, typically in the cadavers, and I have videos and videos to, you know, to show that, started above the dentate line. Right. So we were kind of starting already at the five centimeter margin. We never really worked our way back down towards, you know, the sphincter. You know, how do we deal with a tumor that potentially involves sphincters? Because we were on the path of, we're doing this for tumors kind of, you know, five, six, seven centimeters from the verge. So we never worked through the transanal intersphincter dissection working towards TAT, you know, converting to TATME. So this was a great opportunity to say, we haven't done this before, and we have to sort of bridge that gap. And we know surgeons who do intersphincter resection very elegantly, can we do this safely endoscopically through a platform or not? So I took a step back, and I was actually fortunate that I was, uh, at around the same time, I was on maternal leave, and I went to spend a couple of weeks in France, and I went to actually visit Eric Roulier, who's a pioneer and an expert in intersphincter resection. And that experience was incredible. And it, it really also allowed me to look at that video, because I think it took me about four months to look at that video that I had recorded. Thank God I had the recording. But think about it. Yeah. I had the recording. Yeah. To go back to that video, because first you go back and you say, I have no idea what's going on. And part of the, the, the gap that was is that we hadn't really fully defined the perineal anatomy from the bottom up. It was never really documented very well. And the only evidence that we had for the perineal anatomy was from the urology literature. So we had to walk our way back. And so we started collaborating, and it was wonderful to have, you know, key leaders also in, in Japan and Korea and France kind of working collaboratively to figure this out, map it out, and then starting to review videos to, you know, of these events to say, oh, my goodness, the rectal muscle is a muscle we don't talk about. I never, you know, when I train, it's not even in the colorectal textbooks. And when you do an APR, you do divide it, but you don't see it. Mm-hmm. So it was really a fascinating, you know, um, uh, process that really, in a way, was my last stage of grief. You know, you... You then you 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 know you you recall you collect uh, you reflect you 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 identify where the problem was and then you work to fix it and that that publication where I reached out to every, essentially every center that I knew in the world doing this procedure and say if you had this injury you're not the only one you know uh, please you know don't be embarrassed you know be open to share those videos and this experience with us because we need to educate if this procedure is going to succeed we need to break this. This, this this injury. We need to understand, deconstruct it and understand it. And I was really nicely surprised to see people volunteer the most, you know, painful videos, you know, so we could really analyze. I mean, this is before video-based assessment. We're just reviewing and seeing exactly the point where 
the surgeon gets into the wrong plane and goes too anteriorly. And so we were we could see the same pattern video after video, and we were, you know we were able to map it out and really give instructions and advice on how to avoid it. It was it was good. It was it was my my you know I, I made peace with that that injury because of because of that of that work. Yeah, what's kind of what's kind of amazing about that whole cycle of innovation is that in some ways you actually went back and you looked yeah. at all this like very old data from the urology literature yeah. talking about perineal prostatectomies and they had actually described that rectourethral muscle decades. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what the first paper that you cited in your talk, but like decades, much lo- pre- much longer ago, yeah. they had already described that anatomy. And so in some ways, like your innovation where you in, you developed this totally new technique force you to actually go back and like go back to these basics yes. around anatomy and understanding what you're doing like it's it's quite remarkable in that whole cycle of of innovation it is and when we actually went back to the collector literature to see has this been described very specifically and what's the incidence of urethral injury in APRs grossly underreported because mm-hmm. it's not captured in Nesquip. It's not captured in a lot of different databases. So we really didn't have a baseline to go by. So it was really difficult to reconcile that as well and say, we're, we do APRs, we know urethral injuries occur, but no one really went to figure out how that happened and how to correct it. So it was it, the work from the urologist was because that there was a period where they were very interested in perineal prostatectomy. So they essentially were dissecting between the rectum and the, and the, and the prostate and having to um, you know deal with the membranous urethra. So it was really great to put it all back together. And then I realized I cannot believe we didn't think about this step when in a cadaver lab because we were so focused on sort of like you start above the anal, the anal sphincter, above the anal rectal ring, and you just kind of keep going forward from there on, not thinking about those you know more you know real world scenarios where while well, the tumor is a little bit lower and you can still do intersphincter resection so let's work on that model i mean i could talk to you about all day <laughs> this, is, this is the danger of, of yes. uh, me interviewing you is yeah. i could talk to you about this all day um, but i do really want to touch on the the learning aspect of this and the mentorship aspect of this um, you know, as we go forward, and you gave this great panel, we were part of this great panel discussion uh, uh, during Sages about talking about real-world variations in TME. And, you know, there's so many different tools now mm-hmm. that are available for doing ro- uh, rectal cancer surgery from the robot, laparoscopically, transanally. You know, where do we go from here with TATME? And mm-hmm. I, I know this is a big, big, big question to answer, but, you know, from someone who really pioneered the technique, where do you see TATME fitting in our plethora of techniques and where do we go from here yeah. with TATME? Well, that's a great question. That's really the million dollar question. I think, you know, the ultimate goal was to bridge a gap of, you know, we have to be able to do better for our patients, you know, than doing and recommending APR for everybody with a tumor, you know, six centimeters or less. So I think the goal has been achieved. You know, with TATME, we've really proven that we can do this. We think to do it safely, especially with good patient um, selection criteria. But I think what's been exciting to see is that you can also, especially when you master the robot, you can also get quite low. You may not be able to go all the way you know, and do intersphincter resection. You have to be able to combine it with intersphincter resection. But TATME gives you a tool to really evolve from inter- intersphincter resection up. So in terms of training, I think we stand by our recommendation in terms of the prerequisite to do this. And, and we can't even have this conversation outside of the big elephant in the room. It's should you be doing any of those procedures unless you're at a high volume center? And that's a difficult question. It is not difficult in Europe. In most of Europe, I think, is on board now. But I think in the U.S., we're still struggling because we, we don't really have a policy or, you know, uh, guidelines or anything that say, you know, if you're doing less than five cases per year, you probably should be referring them out. That discussion hasn't, ha- hasn't been had because we don't tell surgeons what to do. 
but it's it's really the big question is you know we're, we're assuming you are doing at least 15, 20 cases per year, and we want you to have the best possible outcomes of those cases and give the best chance for patients to retain their consonants if there's a possibility to do so. So that's a big question to answer. And from there on, if you are in one of those sites and you want to be well prepared to offer those techniques, I think the training pathway is becoming complex. There's no question. The ideal role of TATME, in my opinion now, and we've said this for a couple of years, is in a high volume center that gets a lot of referrals of these complex tumors that have not responded to TNT, right? It's big, it's, everything is about organ preservation now. But for those tumors that have not responded and they're very low and threatening the CRM and threatening the sphincters, to at least send them for a, you know, a, a referral to a high volume center that does those procedures routinely, that has the institutional experience to do this. So to answer your question is, if you're interested in this and you meet all those criteria, high volume surgeon, I'm going to be, you know, doing a lot of those cases and I've had the basic, you know, training requirements, transcendental surgery, I'm comfortable with TME, either lap or robotic, but I want to be able to, you know, enhance my skill set. You need to be trained in a place like that. So we don't have formal training pathways. I think it's, that's, that's the issue. If you end up being a fellow, I think the fellowship, you know, being geared towards those places that do more TME is one strategy. Or working on, um, you know, sort of non-accredited fellowships and or training, you know, time, spending at least six months or 12 months in an institution, at the very least observing those procedures if you can't really do procedures if you're not a fellow there. But, I mean, there's pathways to do that where you can really get the extended experience and mentorship from, a, from someone who's doing a lot of those procedures. But if you're, if you're dabbling in rectal cancer, I don't think there's a role for any approach, really, but especially for THME, which is, as you know, the learning curve is so long, and it does require a significant amount of cases to be able to get to your learning curve. Part of the whole crux of this, and you know, going sort of back to the theme of innovation, is that you know we're sort of at this crossroads in surgery now, where there, for many things, there's clearly an impact of volume, right? Yeah. And and clearly, you know, we've seen throughout the conference here at Sages, where the high volume experts, they do think about these problems differently. And same for rectal cancer. It's not even just in the operating room. It's how do you even get to the operating room uh, for rectal cancer? And you know, there almost seems to be so, two approaches. One is to like educate people as to what they should do. And the second is to sort of say, well, maybe you should be sending that to a high volume surgeon. Exactly. And you know, where we're from in Canada, where there's large geographic spread, and where it may be hard for patients to come, there's still certainly... Um, you know, debate about whether which sort of route we should go. I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, about, you know, sh- should we be really getting people to come uh, to refer their complex cases? You know, what is the volume that you really need to be able to do this safely? What are your sort of thoughts about which direction we should go? I mean, I think in a place like Canada, especially if you have areas where, you know, um, there's not a whole lot of expertise or the expertise. I think that the concept of consolidating the expertise in one particular center is, is, is critical. Um, so, I mean, I'm a big believer in centralization. I, you know, I know that that will upset a lot of people, but I, I really think the European models, you know, I, I'm not advocating for the state or the government to tell you which center should be, you know, center of excellence or not. But I think we all know what a center of excellence looks like. I mean, we have data to support, you know, the, the, the outcomes being so linked to volume. It's just a fact. So putting effort in, in identifying those places, promoting those places, making sure that patients are empowered to go to those places, resolving issues of access, I think is important. The higher the volume, you know, at those places, the more experience they're going to be. If you can get patients there, 
you can then develop the expertise there. And this is where you'd have someone, you know, sponsored by the institution to go and get robotic training or TATME training. I mean, these places should have a TATME trained surgeon. There's no question. I think every place that does more than 20, 30 cases per year should have a TATME trained surgeon. Because even with a robot, there will be cases where you just cannot get low, especially in very high BMI male patients with low tumors, not responded, close to the sphincter, and the patient does not want a stoma and is eligible for sphincter sparing, but you need that expertise. Having someone trained in TATME is extremely valuable. So it comes down to volume again, but strategies to try to you know promote and 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 really make sure patients are aware of these centers and make sure that that you spread that information. So most oncologists are not aware of these different of these subtleties in surgery. They sort of see it as black or white. Right. You know, surgery, surgery it's surgery. Yeah. You know, you know who cares how it's done. But the concept of stoma, you know, for them sometimes is not as relevant as the oncologic results. But, you know, you, you need to educate the, the oncologist and radiation oncologist. You know, tumor boards obviously are critical. So in your tumor board, there should be a, a healthy discussion on, it should be one of the box on the list. Is this patient amenable to sphincter preservation and why? I think it should be on every tumor board re, you know, review. And it could be, oh, I don't think so because there's a threatened margin. That's one thing as opposed to it's possible, but I don't have the skill set. I can't do that. I don't, I don't do intersphincter resection. That maybe should trigger a question of, well, should we send them to some, a site to consider for consideration for sphincter sparing surgery? That would be the ideal scenario. I did want to also congratulate you. Uh, you're now going to be the president-elect for SAGES starting in, in 2023. And I, I, as I was saying to you before the interview, this is my actually my first SAGES meeting. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, we interviewed Dr. Feldman before, and she was like, you got to come to SAGES. And I was like, well, well I, I should try. And thankfully, I was able to come this year. And I've been blown away by how enjoyable a, a conference it's been and what the energy level has been at Sages. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about, you know, the hybrid format that we've had here at Sages this year and the fact that we're all able to get together again. Uh, were there any particular sessions um, that you that you think are worth highlighting yeah. and mentioning? So I'm still totally riding high on, on the meeting. I think it was incredible. And and you know, Vegas last year was 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 didn't have as much energy because you know there were fewer people. I think you know it was incredible to get people, and we we're still missing a big international consortium. I mean, not having our Japanese colleagues and Korean colleagues and a lot of Europeans who could make it. You know, it's it's not exactly the same spirit, but I think it was. I agree with you. The energy was tremendous. People were so excited to be back together, having healthy debates in the sessions. So that was really incredible. I think. The sessions, I, I thought the program was, was spectacular. So I was really excited about it. And especially, um, you know, with Sages embracing, um, you know, more technology-focused sessions and content, there's a big push towards really um, understanding digital surgery, you know, being at the forefront of AI innovations. And it fits right in our mission of innovation. So to see, you know, we had a couple of sessions on AI. Um, that was really nice. So besides robotics and besides new endoscopic approaches, you know, AI and how, what the role AI is going to play in the safety, you know, trying to be a safer surgeon and then providing interoperative guidance, for example, is, is really incredible. We're sort of on that cusp of that revolution. And, and to see everyone at the table, industry and, and mem, you know, members are just trying to figure out what's going on and then experts in the field all coalescing to, to discuss these issues was really exciting. But there's other, you know, the content also across every service line. I mean, I, I'm, I'm always excited because, you know, we get to, you know, we design our content and we did something actually unique the past year where we don't just ask our committee members to, to come up with, with, um, um, 
ideas for the content for the sessions. We actually open it to the entire membership. So this wide open process to say, send in your request. So we got bombarded and, and we love it. We want the ideas and suggestions from the membership to make sure we really cover everything. But it's hard to do that. But I think every specialty has a tremendous amount of, of sessions and video interactions and discussing complications and, and, um, and outcomes review. So I think it was really nice. And then of course, you know, dear to our heart was also having, you know, content on wellness and especially, you know, DEI was, was a big focus for our society, most societies, but sages as well. And so that was really nice to have, you know, between the keynote speaker and some sessions specifically focused on diversity in the workplace and how we can get better within organizational structures, but also in hospitals, obviously. It was really nice to have, you know, um, you know, a wide variety of speakers speak on these issues. So I thought that was, you know, one of the best content I've seen. I'm, I'm super psyched. And um, the hybrid format, you know, to be honest, millennials love it. You know, I, I see people walking to one session, having an earbud, and, and then listening to another <laughs> session, so they they can get the get whole both. content. I'm a little bit guilty of that. You know, if I'm going to a board meeting in between, I'll be kind of logging in, and so I think it's good. It's very successful. I think it's a format that we really think will stay at least for a while. Um, people still value, obviously, coming in and you know having this interaction with experts. It's incredible, but it's it's to be you know a live session and hearing this, and it's very very valuable. So we'll see our numbers in terms of how many people logged in remotely and, and followed it versus the in-person um, presence. But it was pretty good. I can't complain about in-person. You know, we had we had rooms pretty full. Yeah. The presidential address was packed room, and that was great. I can't agree more. I have to <laughs> you. Great. And I, for all our listeners, uh, I think the, all the presidential sessions are actually free online on yeah. YouTube. Everybody needs to go listen to Dr. Feldman's talk. Everybody needs to go listen to uh, uh, K. Marie King's talk. Yeah, they were both really inspirational. You really, really left with some goosebumps on your on your arms yeah. after the session. So, hats off to you and and the rest of the stages. It's going to be hard to top that, but we'll we will. <laughs> so, so having said all that, about what a wonderful meeting. What are your thoughts about? Um, where sages can go from here. Um, you know, like it's a, it's a challenging time in the world more broadly, mm-hmm. so culturally within our, uh, within North America. Uh, there's a lot of different things going on inside and outside of surgery. Right. And what are your thoughts about where sages can go from here? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, the bottom line is we have to continue to be true to our mission. And, you know, the, the mission is continuing to innovate and collaborate, and, and especially education is, is really our main line. And so that work continues. I think more than ever, especially through COVID, we've seen how valuable you know, the educational offerings were. The, the, the attendance of webinars was off the hook. We, we have thousands and thousands of members, or not even Sages members, non-members, were tuning in those webinars and joining this Facebook, the Sages Facebook groups. And we saw that, that, that hunger, that thirst, you know, to not only be together, but to actually continue our education programs. And we know residency and fellows have been affected by, by COVID. So the main focus remains, you know, really, uh, being quite razor sharp focused on education, really having the best education modules possible. So we're very concentrated on developing, um, you know, the master's pathway, which will really help surgeons to enter the pathway and, and have the best education experience along levels of, of competency or proficiency and expertise and really grouping all our educational material in one place. It'll be much easier to navigate on our, on our online platform, which is being deployed on Monday. So we're very excited about that and continuing to work in that. But 
the mission of you know pushing the boundaries and innovation is going to be going more than ever. I think we're very focused on making sure that we stay on top of what's happening. And so, you know, this is the the committees were formed to really tackle, you know, the the, the issues of you know, video-based assessment and what it will mean for us. So we're developing these, you know, these programs to be able to assess the competency of surgeons-based video assessment. How do you do that? So the technology is evolving in that direction, but we need to make sure that once, you know, these algorithms are in place and we can really better understand, you know, competency and, you know, the question is how do you implement training? So if somebody falls short of a particular score that's been validated as, you know, is not competent, what next? We can't just stop there. So we're also working already now on coaching. How do we implement coaching? How does it going to be, look like? You know, getting a report card, being then paired up with a, with a proctor who's dedicated to you know coaching you through the process in a longitudinal way. So we want to really the 360 experience where you know Sages will you know you'll be it will be your resource not only for your education but for your assessment of competency and then you know remediation or enhancement of your skills and all in one hub. Um, so this is sort of like the big picture, and it does require, you know, being on the cutting edge of innovation. As those algorithms are being developed, and everybody worries about this in healthcare, you can't let data scientists, you know, decide what the algorithms are. They have to, they're relying on us to tell them what's important, what's not. We have to tell them critical view of safety. What does that mean? For them, it's just a data point, right? right. But for us, it's, it's, it's the art of what we do. It's the safety metrics. So we have to define what the metrics are, what, what, what the clinical endpoints are, what the valuable endpoints are. And so I think it's going to require really very close collaboration with those data scientists to develop these algorithms in the best efficient, you know, meaningful way. So I'm excited about that. I think very few societies are able to really merge efforts and we have such a tradition of working collaboratively with industry. Um, we don't want to be on a competitive basis. So data collection, for example, what does it look like? So when we launched CBS Challenge and asking people to give, donate videos so that we can refine those algorithms, what does that mean for individual surgeons and members? So we have a lot of work to figure out how we do this in a ethical fashion, in a way that it's it's collaborative and, and that data set can be used by others, not just by a limited group of people. So we have a lot of things to do, but that will really create pathways that I think are are going to set the tone for the future. So we, we hope to remain on the on, on the you know upper edge of innovation. That's really a, a big focus of the society, um, and we have other focuses. But I think this is sort of you know what members are going to want to see from us. And of course, you know another big initiative for us that we're going to continue um, working very hard on is you know our big focus on DEI. So not not only within the organization, but we're also very focused on making sure we are inclusive and alert to um, how we deliver our care, especially our minimally invasive surgery care to underserved populations. So a big focus I'm really excited about is, for example, from every educational content that we produce, we'll also take into account the DEI perspective. You know, are those recommendations that we put out, are they also including, you know, underserved areas? Uh, what, what about vulnerable populations? Where do they fall on the spectrum? Can we do better to increase access to underserved areas? Every guideline that we produce, does the evidence include those populations? Did we look closely at, you know, diabetic African-American males and how that particular bariatric procedure affect them, you know, in a way that is different than other populations where you don't have as much data on them potentially? So it highlights some gaps in how we practice surgery, highlights disparities that we want to bring back and incorporate in our recommendations and guidelines and research initiatives. So I'm a big, you know, you know I'm big on research. So... 
I, I don't want it to be just about expert recommendations and review of the evidence. I want to create that evidence as well. So another focus, I'm, I think, in the next few years is going to also uh, put in place a framework to do clinical collaborative trials. I'm really excited about what we can do with 7,000 members. Many of them want to be part of, of the solution and are really open to collaborating in, in audits or registries or just, you know, prospective trials. So I'm, I'm excited about the potential that we can do with our with our um, operations. We've done it in some ways, and I think it's it's time to scale that effort. Because I think one of the challenges for SAGES is, you know, it, it was originally united around this concept of um, minimally invasive techniques and technology. And it's clear now that, like, um, you know, for example, like I go to a lot of the sessions on robotics and the reality in Canada is that we just don't have access, for example, to robotics. And so, you know, I think one of the challenges for SAGES really is going to be staying relevant to everyone who listens because really SAGES now has a has a global audience. And I'd be remiss not to give a shout out to the SAGES bots yeah. who really has like, you know, you know, expanded the reach and, and really made SAGES a worldwide organization. People watch the YouTube videos from SAGES around the world. And so, you know, one of the things Dr. Mellinger was talking about last night um, at the social event was even perhaps introducing sort of that frugal innovation or reverse innovation where you actually learn from surgeons who are in less resourced settings. And so I'm curious how how that fits into stages, which in some ways has been viewed as this a place to learn the like the most cutting edge kind of techniques. That's an excellent question. I think we have a lot of work to do in that area. I mean, we have a, uh, our global surgery group is doing a lot of work in underserved areas, especially in South America and now Africa. And I think we have a lot of work to do. So, for example, a, a simple uh, solution that they came up with, for example, was when they're teleproctoring, they, you know, they came up with a way to use Zoom to essentially be able to provide, you know, like C360 neo-war and laparoscopically. And so others guiding their surgeons and training their surgeons, they have that platform, which is low cost to be able to do, to do the teleproctoring remotely. This is a solution that, you know, could only come about when you're actually on the ground figuring out with low resources, how do you make it happen and how do you scale that? So you're right. We have a lot to learn from other areas, low resource areas, to to incorporate back into the framework to see, you know, how how do we do this, and especially how do we scale it in areas in areas that are underserved. Um, so more to come. And I really have to ask, like, I know you have a family with kids and uh, and and all of that, the responsibilities that accompany that. How do you how do you make all that happen? Um, I don't need a lot of sleep. <laughs> That's probably one. Although as I'm in my 40s now, it's uh, I have to say the the sleep, you know, I, I could thrive on four hours of sleep a night for many, many years. And, you know, in late in my 40s, I feel like it's not quite the same. So you have to really take care of yourself. Um, so I'm, I'm more aware now of my limitations than I ever was before you kind of take your, your strength and energy for granted. Um, but I think the other thing is is support and, you know, being surrounded by people who really believe in you. I mean, I have a husband, he's a scientist, and I, I've been very lucky. You know, his schedule is, is easier. He can spend more time at home. He's there before I get home, you know, at night. So there's there's ways that you can, you can you know, arrange your home life in a way that's compatible with your with your crazy work life. And then, you know, I think it's it's the passion. I mean, he's a passionate scientist. And it's kind of nice not to be talking about surgery all the time, <laughs> which is good. Totally. Um, and I'm passionate about what I do. So I think, you know, it sustains you. It, it really um, it makes you thrive. And I think, you know, when you have that desire and that, that love for what you do and that joy in what you do, it, it really gets you through a lot. And um, 
there's no question having a community of surgeons. I mean, I have mentors, but very valuable to me is having, you know, female mentors or mothers because it's hard to relate with others, you know, when you're getting life advice or career advice, you know, from people who haven't gone through what you've gone through. It adds a layer of, you know, real, you know, tangible solutions. And so it's been really amazing, especially through Sages. I've had the best mentors who really demonstrated, you know, themselves and given me the best advice to make it work and be a, uh, you know, a good mother, <laughs> I hope, you know, and, and a good surgeon and a good friend and a good colleague and especially a good educator and really being able to 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 do all of that. And, you know, we, we I mean, we can't not talk about the fact that you're among a very rare group of female black surgeons at the really at the top level of academic surgery. What was the experience like? Like, did you ever experience challenges during training um, uh, on any of those types of fronts or levels? And, and how did you kind of overcome the Yeah, I mean, we, we all have stories, you know, and, and uh, we, we talked about this. I mean, the first part of your talk was how you build resilience. And, um, you know, there, there, there are things that happen that, that you decide, um, you know, how you how you react in a moment can be different on how it impacts you you know later so i think everyone has experiences that that are less comfortable than others and you learn from them i mean i think we 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 navigate those you know complicated waters we learn from them it, it makes us tougher and then you know you hope at some point you can you know talk about it when you especially when you become a leader this is your opportunity to affect change and this library of experiences from yourself, your own personal experience, and others uh, takes a different meaning. Because once you're finally in a position of leadership, this is really when you can really affect significant change. And so we don't take these positions for granted. We're fully, constantly aware and you know, of, of, of what we can do and finally affect. So it's, it's a very privileged position to be in, to finally you know, implement programs and you know, have those difficult conversations and, and really make sure that your, your faculty, you know, your residents, your students you know, feel that it's a safe space to discuss and to implement you know, those changes. It's, it's critical. But we've all had bad you know, ex- experiences. Um, this is a reality of, of even even being in New York. I mean, I think I've been relatively protected, being in a very diverse you know environment, training in New York in New York City. But still, it doesn't. It's not a protective. It's not a protective factor. And you know, you you have people with you know different backgrounds and biases, and and uh, you can combat it with with humor. That's what I did. My strategy was, we got to turn this around really quick before it escalates. Uh, but sometimes you know, and then we know now. Um, that's not enough. You have to really, you know, bring attention to it and address it right there and then as much as possible. So people know they can't, they can't, there's things that you just don't do. I mean, such a, an important topic that we need to address within surgical training. So what do you think we can do to make um, training programs more inclusive for everyone who wants to come and become a surgeon who has the, you know, the requisite drive and the passion and the, the ability to do it? Like, how, how do we make our institutions welcoming to everyone? I think perception is a lot. I think it's it's really important, and I think programs are going through reckoning right now of, you know, what do we look like? What do we look like to our patients? What do we look like to our trainees and our faculty? You know, especially if you think about recruiting and, and retaining, you have to really start paying attention to all those elements. 
Um, and, and, you know, you have to embrace the change. You have to be committed to the change. So, you know, we, we're moving away from just checking boxes. You know, we have X percent of minorities, therefore we're good. Nothing else to do. It's really being inclusive, mean, at every level of decision making and, and activities. And, and, and you have to be really reflecting on who, who's at the table making those decisions. How does it impact, um, you know, perception, visibility? So I think, Every, every program should be going through this process of really internally looking and seeing where those gaps are. And I think once you start working on this with, you know, proper programs and, um, you know, training and, 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 and you know, dedicated, focused, intentional recruitment uh, to, to fill those gaps, it, it will become transparent to the applicant. You know, they will see the change. They want to see that you are serious about diversity. They want to see that you're serious about advocating for these groups. And so it's, it's essential. So I'm hopeful. I think every program is going through this. You know, some are investing more resources than others. Um, but it's happening. I think, you know, we've, we've really, uh, you know, pulled a band-aid. We know it was always there. The wound was always there. But I think we really are, um, making a concerted effort as, you know, as a society to really, um, you know, to, to, to deal with those issues and, and, and create a better environment for, for the future. One of the questions we like to ask all of our guests, uh, at the end of the podcast is, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a chief resident or maybe even as an early attending, having gone through what you've gone through, what would that advice be? Don't let people tell you that you can't do something that you're really passionate about. I mean, I have to be honest, I, 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 uh, I've always been known to be quite stubborn. And when people say no a bunch of times, like, there must be something to it. <laughs> but, you know, I, you shouldn't have to fight or convince people like and I tell the residents all the time it's like if you have a good idea or, or, or you have a gut feeling about something that you're really passionate about there will be people who will who will break it down who will just tell you a million reasons why you can't do it and going back to your point about you know some of the comments you know when I was a resident of things I could not could not do because I was a female primarily I don't know how the black part came into it but it probably was in an unconscious fashion you can't do this you can't do that you have to stick to it, and, and and it will take some effort. It will take some courage. Uh, it will take resilience. But if you truly are passionate about something, you know now. I mean, there's really no excuse not to get out of your comfort zone and go and reach out for what you want. I mean, there's mentors outside of your institution. You know, through social media, you can connect with people who can you know empower you and enable you. There's really no limits if you really truly believe in something. And I was shy, you know, but not you know. I, I think I think I overcame a lot of those by um, I sort of, you know, bullying my way through things. It shouldn't be so hard. Um, and so I think my, my, my advice is, um, if you're really passionate about something, you know, there's, there's a path to get it done. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments and feedback so send us an email podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at camjsurge thanks again